0: American freedom is secured by the commitment of our courts and our people to the rule of law. National Review's The McCarthy Report offers listeners in-depth analysis on the most pressing legal questions facing the country. Alongside National Review Editor-in-Chief Rich Lowry, veteran prosecutor and law professor Andy McCarthy leverages his decades of legal experience to cut through the noise of media hysteria with sober-minded, thoughtful commentary. Tune in to The McCarthy Report on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. What's wrong with Biden energy policy and how can we do it better? We'll discuss all this more with guest Arthur Herman as part of our special sponsored series on energy. We're doing a number of these episodes throughout the next several weeks. Your regularly scheduled programming we will return with our next episode. Our sponsor is ClearPath, an organization devoted to breakthrough energy technologies that you can find at ClearPath dot org. Arthur Herman is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute and the author of numerous best-selling books. The most recent, a really terrific history of the Vikings. And you are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. And with that, Arthur, thanks so much for joining us. Oh,
1: it's a pleasure to be here. Happy to talk to you.
0: All right. So obviously, energy. Uh, I mean, there, there are few more important topics in terms of the health of a, a nation. I have behind me here on my bookshelf the great tome by the Yale uh, professor and historian Paul Kennedy, uh, the rise and fall of great powers. And and uh, uh, it, it, I was slow reading this, Arthur. I don't know, it came out in the 80s sometime. And I just read it, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. But it it's just, it, it's about, as the title says, you know, the rise and fall of great powers. And energy is just a, a huge element of it. And there are these tables he has throughout the book, you know, of energy consumption and energy uh, production. So for, a great country such as ours to turn its back on a amazing strategic economic blessing you know of of having just abundant natural um, reserves of all sorts of different kinds of energy is just in the sweep of history it's bizarre i mean there, there's it's it's hard right to think of any example of, of any country prior to this it'd be like the the british saying you know in the uh, 18th century "Well, we don't coal. we don't want to use coal <laughs> why would we do that and that's it's, right
1: it's, it's bizarre it, it, that's i think that's so and, and let's go back to rubbing sticks together as a means by which to start fires so we can use that to heat water uh, and uh, and use that as our energy source that's how that's how backward-looking it is, and the shame of it is, Rich, is that not only are we uh, squandering an enormous economic opportunity, and also to the means by which our re- our great reserves and production of fossil fuels—I'm thinking particularly about natural gas—can provide the perfect transition, the perfect bridge to those clean renewables of solar and. Uh, uh, solar and wind and geothermal—everyone is talking about. Um, instead, what we've done is we've basically not just shot ourselves in the foot, but cut off cut ourselves off with the legs. And the the, and the key beneficiary in all this, by the way, is going to be China. Mm-hmm. And I would say, if uh, the leadership in Beijing, if uh, President uh, uh, President Xi Jinping's um, strategic brain trust had come up with an energy policy that would ensure that America uh, goes into decline as a superpower and opens the way for China to emerge as a global global hegemon. They could not have picked a better plan than the one is that's being played out right now um, with uh, with this current administration.
0: Yeah. So so expand on on that. Why is it such a boon to China in particular?
1: Well, because, it, because what it does is, is it, it, it hobbles. Two reasons. Well, three, actually, when you come down to it. number The first of it is, is that it hobbles and, and handicaps our ability to grow economically. Mm-hmm. Um, every great power, every uh, civilized nation in history has been dependent upon cheap energy. Um, in the ancient world, that cheap energy, by the way, took the shape of, of human slavery. Uh, that's why slavery existed. It was a cheap form of energy to get tasks done. Um, in the 19th century, as you just pointed out, uh, in came coal. And coal became the cheap energy by which to grow economies and in which to make societies more prosperous uh, and more affluent. And then in the 20th century and now into the 21st century, we've seen the fossil fuels and the transition from dependence on oil only and primarily now to also natural gas as a uh, as a relatively clean burning but also very cheap source of energy becomes fundamental to the economies of uh, not just the United States but the western world and also to China let's be honest uh, the fossil fuel fossil fuels power China's enormous economic growth as well uh, but by forcing us to cut back on that to become not energy independent, as we were um, in the last two decades, and even by 2018, the world's number one uh, oil and natural gas producer. Uh, What we've done now is we've become, once again, as we were in the 70s and 80s and early 90s, we've become dependent upon foreign sources of oil. That very much limits our ability to to grow and expand our economy. That's number one. Number two is is that it's also made it really difficult for us to use our position as the world's number one oil and natural gas producer for strategic purposes. You know, Rich, a uh, c- couple of years ago, um, uh, we published my essay on America's oil weapon. Uh, You remember that in an an issue of National Review that talked about the way in which energy production in the United States, particularly oil, but also natural gas, could become a strategic tool by which to advance American interests, but also to place uh, strong constraints on the abilities of countries like Russia and like China to advance their uh, global agendas versus the world's democracies. Um, and if you think about our position uh, as we had and and we can g- regain as the world's number one uh, energy producer if we think about that as a tool by which to achieve those same ends particularly now that china's become such a serious threat and an obvious threat to all of us uh, and to and and to enter and to the world at large um, this is a strategic tool which we're basically leaving on leaving in the locker uh, and not bringing out and and taking advantage of. And then the third reason, Rich, which I know you understand and I'm sure many of your listeners do too, is is that the growing uh, obsession that we have with solar energy and solar panels feeds a major industry in China, which is the production of cheap solar panels. So the more that we shift over to clean renewables, (laughs) as they're labeled, the more, in fact, we become dependent on China as the main source of the commodity that makes uh, solar power uh, possible and makes it cheaper. Uh, so that's three strikes, three different strikes against the, the, the way in which uh, the current administration is pursuing a, a broken and bankrupt energy policy.
0: So I want to come back to the the, the details of, of how that policy is broken and actually what it is. But let me proceed a little bit out of, out of order, if you'll uh, forgive me. So coming back to, to China, so that bet on solar panels that China has made, is that a good bet? Is that uh, an argument that uh, maybe Greens in this country were correct? We should have been doing, you know, Solyndra be damned. We should have been doing the same thing ourselves in a much more robust way.
1: No, I don't think so. I think it, just the opposite. What it really suggests is is that much of the push with regard to solar p- panels and solar energy, quite apart from the fact that it is such a low has such low energy density compared to fossil fuels. In other words, that it's so inefficient and so unproductive relative to fossil fuels in terms of the kind of power that you're able to achieve, uh, the use that you're able to get out of its versatility, um, and its reliability. For all of those reasons, what the real the where the real effort needed to be directed was to find ways to make um, uh, the generation of solar power and so and and the use of uh, and storage of solar powdery, uh, solar power through battery technology would have been a much better bet than producing fungible goods like uh, solar panels. What we're really seeing, I think, in many ways is that, and, and even so, even with government subsidies, there was no way that we were going to be able to undercut the price of uh, cheap manufactured solar panels coming out, of, coming out of China. So, it was a misconceived energy strategy from the very beginning, uh, from the, uh, a legacy of an Obama administration that was driven by this obsession with green renewable energy, um, that has uh, been uh, very much to the benefit of China and that really was would have only minimal benefit for us if we had taken a, um, a protectionist or a reshoring uh, approach to solar panels, certainly by comparison to what we can do and have done when we look at using the energy sources we do have that are here and that have much more reliability and much more energy density like uh, oil and natural gas. So,
0: have we been making those uh, kind of investments in in batteries, um, or, or um, just not the level that's that's necessary? Or, or, or where does that stand?
1: Well, there's a there are big challenge, there are enormous challenges that go with that. And yes, there is a lot of work that takes place both at the commercial level, but also at places like the Department of Energy to find ways to make the battery technology that can store more efficiently. Uh, and <clears throat> that will, in a sense, really amplify um the power of the energy of the energy which is stored and it makes available. The problem we've got with storage batteries right now is that they're enormously clumsy and heavy. Look at the batteries, for example, the lithium ion batteries that go into uh, electric vehicles right now. Mm-hmm. Um, these are enormously expensive, clumsy pieces of pieces of machinery. And I would say probably in the next, four or five years, you're going to see some advances that look beyond lithium-ion battery technology to something uh, that will be cheaper and more efficient uh, and uh, and will work better from a component standpoint. We've done a study here at Hudson Institute on electric battery technology and the ways in which that's going to change and advance the next several years. There's many promising areas there. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not, a, I'm not an enemy of electric vehicles, mm-hmm. and I'm definitely not an opponent about the development of, uh, of battery technology as an important way for the future. But the fact of the matter is, Rich, that even when we come to the question of lithium-ion batteries, for example, um, which are of use for electric vehicles uh, but for a number of other kinds of uses, particularly, particularly for our defense departments, um, we still come back to the real question about supply chains mm-hmm. and the supply chain for um, lithium ion batteries uh, for many of the ingredients, including including lithium, now all extend back to China. Mm-hmm. So from the point of view of, of energy independence and supply chains, in other words, safe, reliable, secure supply chains, which we're all aware of now more than ever since covid um, you have to say that the supply chain and reliability of the energy that we extract right here in the United States for oil and natural gas, and I'm going to include coal here, uh, far outweighs any advantages, future and long-term advantages that we might get by trying to shift over to a uh, uh, electric battery, uh, uh, advanced battery. And solar panel-driven economy, we've got a long way to go before we're going to be ready to uh, to that becomes an important and and a and a vital source of our of our energy, but also of our economy. Okay, so l- let's
0: circle back then because this this kind of future-oriented stuff. Let's let's go back to the the uh, the, the present. And so yes. so Biden, Biden comes in, and what what does he? Do what? What? What are the specific policies that are
1: grievous mistakes? Well, the very first thing he does, almost his signature act as first act as president, was to cancel uh, the XL pipeline. Mm-hmm. Um, and the XL pipeline was the pipeline that would allow uh, U.S. Uh, refineries to have, have access to Canada's oil reserves, particularly its oil shale reserves. This is a pipeline that energy industry, everyone connected with um, the, the role that energy plays in driving economies, both for the United States and for Canada. Everybody understood that this was a vital uh, step in providing uh, cheap and abundant uh, oil for the United States and for the growth of our economies and also for a strong relationship between the United States and Canada built, built on our energy resources. We all Everyone also understood that the only obstacles to this was, were the uh, almost fanatical opposition on the part of green groups, uh, radical environmentalists who were looking for every possible excuse to delay and to... Uh, uh, and And to halt um, the, the, the 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 completion of the XL pipeline. It's been going on now fifteen years. I'm t- taking that number off the top of my head, but it's been been going on for years, this battle. And then, at the last minute, the Biden administration decided that it would signal, that it would signal its commitment to green energy and to the radical environmentalist lobby by canceling the pipeline, uh, a slap in the face to our Canadian neighbors, a slap in the face to the growth of American uh, industry and economy, uh, to which that Canadian oil would be extremely helpful and an important ingredient here. But it was also, too, a signal a shot across the bow to the entire en- en- energy industry in this country that Biden was going to be uh, uh, playing according to a very different playbook, one that was Dictated not by what is the best economic interest for America, not that which makes for energy security for America, but instead on what his green advocates and advisors were telling him uh, he needed to do. The second big change that took place was placing more and more obstacles in the ways of securing of securing uh, permits for drilling on federal lands. This was a um, this was a, a an important aspect of of expanding our own oil and natural gas production to meet an ever growing demand, not just in this country but around but but around the world. And um, the Biden administration has trumpeted a great deal about the fact that there are what nine thousand leases that have been approved for. Uh, for drilling on federal lands and that uh, energy companies uh, aren't taking them up. But the fact of the matter is approving leases is one thing. Actually getting the permit to drill uh, and to explore is quite another. And that regulatory process has gotten more complicated, more time-consuming in ways that just doesn't make economic sense mm-hmm. for companies um, to to undertake and to and to venture forth. That's why they've been so so discouraged by what the Biden administration has done and, and what the consequences have been. And that is, is that as we, as we slow production and expansion of our ability to produce energy in this country, the growing demand worldwide and in America for that energy only means more and more dependence on what others produce in other parts of the world, Middle East uh, and now Venezuela and uh, other countries many of whom do not wish us well,
0: yeah, so the administration has said, well th- these companies you know th- they're not taking advantage of all the opportunities open to them, they're not investing, and they're really the the problem and and by the way, they're making enormous profits, so uh, d- don't blame us, blame them.
1: Yeah, very much so. And you've seen that too with regard to the price of the price of uh, of gasoline at the pump that somehow this is the fault of, um, of ExxonMobil and of Chevron and of the other big companies and so on, uh, and when the fundamental economics tells you that, no, that's not what sets the price at the pump. Uh, it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the, with the rising price of, uh, of, of oil um, globally and, and worldwide. And this brings us, too, Rich, to the other problem I mentioned, which is uh, at the beginning, which is the issue of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, Mm-hmm. um the millions of barrels of oil which are on reserve to deal with some catastrophe the national catastrophe a uh, breakdown of the national pipeline system uh in time of war uh of of a major crisis which the biden administration decided that they could use to push down um the, the gasoline prices at the pump for political purposes to help set the table for uh, less outrage on the part of voters about the price of gasoline uh, and then taking that outrage out in terms of where they would vote during the midterm elections. Uh, and so we end up with this rather strange situation now that we face now in which uh, we had a, a a strategic petroleum reserve, which is at its lowest point since 1984 because of those – the the, the the siphoning off of barrels of oil for political purposes by the Biden team. And now we've got to replenish it and we're replenishing it at much higher prices uh, than than the reserve was originally built and replenished uh, during the Trump years. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's a lot of (laughs) concern about why are you doing this? Why are you now rebuilding this uh, this reserve when prices are at the top, uh, when – uh, you could have you could have held this in reserve and found other ways to drive the price down, which was, again, mm-hmm. increase right. domestic production. Yeah. So w-
0: what about the pressure on Saudis and OPEC? I mean it, it one, it just doesn't make any any sense if we're we're gonna be using oil, why would why wouldn't we do it our- ourselves <laughs> rather than going to the Saudis? I am still Absolutely oil. Absolutely right? right. And um And uh, we'll we'll
1: address that first. Yeah, I mean, you're you're, you're quite correct. Um, It makes absolutely no sense from a national interest point of view uh, for us to be dependent once again on what OPEX decides. You know, OPEX is going to meet next week and to come up with their next uh, round of decisions about whether to increase output, whether to uh, constrain output. These are, and everyone's waiting with bated breath. What are they going to do? What are the Saudis going to do? What are the other uh, oil-producing countries going to resolve to do, including Russia, of course, who has a, still has an important say in all of this, despite the sanctions that have been imposed, despite the sanctions that have been imposed uh, on, on on Russian uh, oil and natural gas exports, um, and all from all through the Trump years. And even, and I'll give credit, even during the Obama years, the the latter part of the Obama administration, uh, we didn't worry about what OPEC was going to do because we were producing more than enough for ourselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had become the swing producers. The very role that Saudi Arabia used to play um, in the 70s and 80s and the 90s was now suddenly coming over to us and to our own domestic production. All of it made possible, by the way, thanks to... The technological revolution called the fracking revolution. If it hadn't been for fracking, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. But it's thanks to fracking, the new technologies, innovative technologies of how to how to get to and extract uh, oil and natural gas reserves, which used to be thought either too deep or too difficult to get to, that made it possible for us to basically um, basically to triple uh, our oil production from. 2010 to 2020 mm-hmm. we tripled our oil production thanks to France. Um, that was that was the great opportunity uh, which opened up to America now to have a real uh, leverage in dealing with countries, not just OPEC countries but even China, which still is very dependent on oil and natural gas imports in order to feed its economic machine. Uh, to that kind of leverage that we were able to gain, thanks to thanks to fracking, now we have, of course, a you know a, a green administration that's beholden to green interests that want to limit fracking or even shut it down altogether um, as part of their as part of their anti-energy uh, anti-energy uh, agenda. So we find ourselves coming, as I was saying at the beginning, back in full circle. Really, we've come back full circle. For where we were in the 1970s, where we everybody looked to, to and worried about what Saudi Arabia was going to do, what OPEC was going to do, that the economic fortunes of the of the industrial and post-industrial world, including the United States, depended on what decisions were going to be made for that you know two weeks in Vienna or wherever long the meetings were going to take place, to one in which we were making the call, we were deciding, uh, and and it opened up exports for oil and natural gas to our allies to other countries in ways that really were able to spread prosperity but also uh, also to bank upon our own our own energy energy independence in ways that until fracking came along would just not have been seen possible
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah um, all of that's been abandoned all that's been set aside and all of it is waiting to be reactivated by a different administration. Uh, and by maybe a Congress that can really force this current biden administration to reconsider many of its many of its key uh, and I think uh, very poor decisions in the energy sector
0: so what did you make of speaking of the Saudis of the Saudi rebuff of the biden administration what what geostrategic lesson is there in
1: that well I think the the lesson is that um that's a relationship which has been uh, uh, so badly mishandled by this administration um, in ways that uh, – and here we have to get our – we have to expand our discussion a little bit to talk about the Biden's uh, Biden approach to the Middle East as well as to issues about energy. I believe very strongly that the opening – That has been provided by new leadership in Saudi Arabia has offered an enormous opportunity, not just in terms of our relationship on the basis of oil and gas and energy exports and imports, because we still import, we still import, even with our position as number one oil and natural gas producer, we still buy oil from Saudi Arabia. Uh, It's part of our economic nexus with that part of the world. But also oppor- opportunity for advancing peace in the Middle East um, by f- following up the Abraham Accords that have already been signed with the United Arab Emirates and with Kuwait with another round with, the Saudi-, with Saudi Arabia because everyone in the region fears Iran and worries about mm-hmm. Iran's ambitions in the region here. Um, we've managed to make a mess of that opportunity in dealing with the Saudis from the point of view of Middle East policy, and also by trying to trying to um, put pressure on or to uh, beseech Riyadh to uh, increase uh, oil production in ways that would benefit Democrats during the midterm election, or at least give us. Uh, that's at worst, but give us a little bit more margin in terms of oil prices here at home, price price at the pump. Uh, the Saudis have been very dismissive of that. Or why shouldn't they be? Um, when we have uh, mishandled the other end, the other end of our of a of a, of a possible constructive relationship with the Saudis, uh, this is a it's a very very bad situation, and and it and. Of, of all of the missteps by the Bi- by President Biden and his team, um, this may end up being one of the worst. Is the way in which the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia, which has many promising aspects, has become much more problematic, much more mm-hmm. difficult to sort out for the next president because of the way in which they have mishandled this whole affair, uh, and in particular how. We've lost our leverage because we're not. Although we're still number one uh, producer and of of oil and natural gas, the world demand has gone up in ways that we can't we can't satisfy if we're going to continue to shrink production at home. Mm-hmm.
0: So let's talk a little bit about what more about what we we should be doing. So you've referred to natural gas as as a, you know a bridge or a transition. Yes. So, so is that? Uh, you know natural gas is cleaner quote unquote than than other fossil fuels so if, if you're you know have one eye on uh, climate change or just just pollution na- natural gas is is better all things being equal um and then, but it's not—you know—it's economical. It works. It—it it doesn't have the technological problems still of a lot of these renewables. But it can get you. Um, it, it can be. A, it's a step in the right direction if you care about emissions, and then can can get you to to a time and a place when maybe those renewables make more sense
1: on their own. Is that, I think that? that I think that's so. But unfortunately, we're up against a green energy lobby, uh, a radical environmentalist. Uh, position which wants no fossil fuels whatsoever Uh, and when you present them with the argument that of all the fossil fuels the cleanest uh, as well as as well as uh, as well as a very cheap source of energy namely natural gas is there um, they won't have anything to do with it they want to keep it all in the ground they want to see production curtailed, disappear altogether uh, even before we're ready to shift over to a, a full-scale dependence on uh, solar, wind, and other uh, so-called clean renewable sources, and again, this is all made possible. This 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 natural gas uh, renaissance has taken place in this country, and the and the and the cheap availability for it is made possible by fracking. About two thirds mm-hmm. of the U.S. natural gas production comes from from uh, from from fracking. So. What I would do is, uh, and and also, too, that natural gas represents the next transition away from dependence on coal for power stations and for power generation. And I think that uh, if you were to put together a rational energy policy, one that addresses both, advances our national interest from a strategic point of view, but also one that uh, gives us a, a, a strong and prosperous economy. I would say the combination of pushing for transition to natural gas from coal and oil, particularly for power generation, and then also pushing for nuclear power mm-hmm. as the cleanest as the cleanest energy source of all um, is the way in which you uh, the way which you uh, are able to open up. Uh, almost limitless supply of cheap, available energy that will make economies grow, societies prosperous, and also give the United States a position to uh, be the kind of strong defender and supplier of energy for the other parts of the the democratic world. But what we're really facing, Rich, I think you're going to agree with this, we're really facing is a green energy um, lobby, uh, an environmentalist lobby that doesn't just hate fossil fuels, but hates economic growth.
0: Yeah, hates development as such.
1: Yeah, and economic development—that's right—is—is—is a—is—is is a mortal sin. Yeah, and it must be curtailed. It must be shut down. And you really can't argue with people who are locked right. into this mindset. You say there's
0: just a, have a tremendous cost. If you tell them there's a tremendous cost to this and
1: it will crimp our economy, like yeah, they're like good, (laughs) Good, yeah, that's right, that's right. We they they welcome that, right? You know, let's see us roll back. Let's see us roll back to the uh, roll back to the to the to the uh, to the 17th century to the 16th century in terms of energy sources.
0: Yeah. uh, So
1: good luck for that, because don't forget, they will certainly have they'll they'll have access as the ruling elite. They'll have access to uh, all the goods and goodies that. Uh, fossil fuel economy provides private jets uh, SUVs to uh, escort them from from one green uh, uh, green renewable uh, and climate change meeting after another all those things will be available to those at the at the top the right thinking ones at the top it's the rest of us will have to have to be, uh, shoulder the burden of their uh, of their green utopia
0: so uh, a minute ago, you were saying uh, we need to, to push for uh, natural gas and push for nuclear. So define push. Does that just mean clearing obstacles? Does that mean providing them some sort of uh, subsidy or discouraging o- other sources or, or how, how does it how, how should it best work in your view?
1: Um, by far and away, the most important is to clear away the unnecessary regulations. Um, and, uh, and bureaucratic obstacles that stand in the way of, number one, building the pipelines that make it possible to tap into and to, and, and to permit that energy to flow, particularly from the new areas that, um, that have opened up thanks to fracking for energy production and generation. Mm-hmm. You know, we really have a new energy map here in the United States. It's changing rapidly that states like Ohio and Pennsylvania and North Dakota have become major energy producers. Mm -hmm. We usually think about it or have been trained to think about it in terms of Texas, Oklahoma, uh, and Louisiana. And although they're still hugely important, including as part of the fracking, the fracking formula, uh, the fact of the matter is, is that you've also got now sources of energy, which, uh, are much closer to the to the northeast uh, for consumption of their energy resources, uh, which could be uh, much more efficiently connected to our major refining hubs for oil or for uh, LNG um, uh, processing plants for export abroad uh, along the Gulf Coast and on the East Coast. But all but all going to require pipeline construction, um, and that's got to change. And then with nuclear reactors as well, um, the we have to overcome the Three Mile Island uh, s- mentality, which has been sitting on the potential and suppressing the potential for for nuclear energy in this country for uh, now for, for almost half a century, uh, and to really understand that the construction and building of of the new much uh, smaller and more efficient nuclear reactors the ones that do not produce those large quantities of waste, uh, product, uh, of waste uh, uh, um, product of waste product of plutonium uh, all of these kinds of things these this is a the nuclear nuclear energy is a technology that's advanced enormously since three mile island days and yet we pretend that it is just as perilous and just as uh, uncertain as it was as it was uh, in the 1970s, um, when its actually its safety record was very very good. The truth of the matter is is that these are these what's really required is is moving government out of the way mm-hmm. of where the where energy wants to go and where the companies and entrepreneurs uh, and facilities that can that can. Rebuild and and sustain our energy independence and support our allies in their search for energy security. Um, they're all there. It just requires a federal government that recognizes what its proper role is, which is to facilitate, not to stop, the natural flow of energy in this country.
0: So, how about uh, other renewable sources? You know, wind, wind, solar, geothermal. So we just kind of. You know, w- wait until those uh, you know their breakthrough technological advances that that take care of some of the problems with storage and, and density,
1: or uh, or or what? Yeah, and 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 you you encourage research at places like the Department of Energy uh, to find ways in which to in which to, to speed that that process of of development um, and the move towards commercializing these technologies. In ways that they do become the alternative, the cheaper, more efficient, and more sensible alternative to what fossil fuel
0: uh, mm-hmm. energy
1: uh, represents. I don't know if they'll ever really eclipse nuclear energy. I don't think that's in the works, um, but certainly they can become an important part of our energy picture in the energy future. Yeah, but so- right now, but right now, the effort to to, to try and uh, and uh, and and force Force the transition through, because somehow that this is going to have a a, a an impact on climate change, on um, on a whole range of uh, other very speculative uh, modeling about what would happen if you if you get rid of all fossil fuels, uh, and what the impact would be on the environment, or what the impact would be on on global warming. Um, this doesn't it, – it, it makes no economic sense, and in the end, too, it makes no national security sense because, as we were saying at the very beginning, what it's really doing is playing into the hands of China mm-hmm. by making it more difficult for us to compete economically but also to helping China uh, economy b- because they're going to be supplying the main parts and components and the raw materials for that green utopia that everyone is uh, everyone's talking about
0: so finally climate change how do you how do you think about it how real it is how threatening is it you know every time now that there's a a a natural disaster or quote-unquote extreme weather event it's attributed to climate change whether it's a hurricane or a flood or a fire
1: yeah i think may i think i think it's safe to say that in the mainstream media that 80 percent of what they have to say about climate change and the impact and consequences of climate change is junk science. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think what we've got is a is issues about a, ch- a changing climate, um, about which the, the role that uh, human activity, economic activity, including energy consumption, has played. It remains very problematic and the degree to which changing those that human behavior um, by, for example, eliminating or reducing and then eliminating fossil fuel uh, production and consumption, um, that, the, that, the, that the advantages in terms of lowering temperatures, um, in terms of stopping temperature rises, seem pretty small. I think every... Reliable, sensible study. Even those who are most insistent about climate change being the great crisis of the 20th century, perhaps the greatest crisis humanity has ever faced, um, even their studies suggest that we're talking about very minor variations mm-hmm. in global temperatures uh, as a result of uh, a result of massive economic dislocation and change. And I think, given the fact that climate change arguments and those who are pushing for massive economic dislocation in order to halt or reverse climate change, the fact that their arguments are so dubious, the fact that they fly in the face of our own experience and common sense, that they rely upon um, uh, claims which turn out to be fraudulent, such as the claims that, you know, this is why we have more tornadoes and why our hurricanes are worse than they ever were all the other kinds of things that go with it we have to ask ourselves uh why is it that this agenda is being pushed and why is what's what's behind it and i think more and more what we're coming to see is is that what is behind it is a desire is is a is a strong anti-western bias i can't think of a better way to frame it Mm -hmm. in other words, that. That the values that have that have made America and the West strong and prosperous and free are values which they are seeking to overturn mm-hmm. um, and to replace with a very different set of values, uh, ones which they see as consistent with their utopian vision of the world, uh, utopian vision of, of humanity's more reduced and more modest place. In the in the in the world of of, of of the cosmos and in creation, here and that what we're really dealing with now is not discussion about uh, empirical science or about rising or, or or falling temperatures, but what we're really confronting is a um, a dogmatic mindset that has much more in common, much more in common with the kinds of religious fanaticisms mm-hmm. the West has had to deal with. Going back to the Reformation and the Wars of Religion, to uh, radical Islam, um, and that we have to understand the arguments and have to understand the um, uh, the desires and interests of those who are pushing these agendas uh, at a level which has which is not about rational dialogue or policy compromise, but is about a confrontation between two different ways of seeing the world and understanding humanity's place in it.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that's all very well said. Let's just let's conclude here. I, just every time I I hear people saying, you know, th- this terrible thing that we've done to the developing world, you know, by spewing all these emissions into the atmosphere and having an industrial revolution, you know, everyone should be thanking us, right? <laughs> okay, are there downsides? Sure. I mean, there, there are downsides. To everything, but the the huge advance to human civilization, to human well being, to prosperity, to health, to all the rest of it, for its beginning in the Netherlands. I don't need to tell you. You know, then in England, then here, um, it, you know that that the, you know, we were the advance guard of of the West. It's just enormous Th- that we should feel any guilt over it whatsoever
1: is just crazy. That's an excellent point. And then, if you just think about it in terms of the the role that Western medicine. Mm-hmm. Right and um, uh, and ha- has played in terms of and and of of food production, um, the the ways in which all of these matters which have sprung from the West's uh, economic growth and the factors that have led to that economic growth of reducing poverty, reducing starvation, reducing death by disease. It's incredible that we mm-hmm. find ourselves being. Being thrust into the role of having to pay reparations right. uh, for uh, uh, for what has been, in many ways, the driving engine of that prosperity and of that change that all of humanity has ben- benefited from. But you know, I'm old enough, Rich, to remember this debate that unfolded in the early '70s, what, what was called the North versus South debate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if um, and if Bill Buckley were here he would be nodding his head uh, not knowingly and understanding exactly what I'm talking about because there again the argument was that the north namely the industrialized countries including the United States had enriched themselves through colonialism and uh, economic exploitation uh, had enriched themselves at the expense of the South namely the what called the third world and that therefore that therefore we had to pay them for and provide uh reparations and uh, and support for them to make up for our shameful our shameful record uh as exploiters of uh, of the poorer nations around the world and as with the north south debate this current debate over climate change reparations is ultimately um a, a it's it's a hustler's game. Mm-hmm. It's a uh, it's a it's a way in which to enrich. It's a way that uh, uh, those who advocate this uh, are able to enrich themselves by tricking and guilting the West into thinking that they've done something wrong when in fact they've done nothing wrong. In fact, done a great deal that's right. And right. Uh, I think that if we were to pay more attention to the way in which that North South debate played out. And the way in which it played into the hands, by the way, of the Soviet Union during the Cold War as a way, again, to weaken and to distract the attention of the West as the Soviets built their way towards global hegemony, just as China is doing today uh, under the guise of the climate change debate, Um, I think we can see much more clearly what's really happening here and we can develop a, a much better and more effective strategy for, uh, for dealing with it.
0: Awesome. Arthur, this has really been a wonderful conversation. Thanks so much for your time. Hey, it's always a pleasure, Rich. Thanks so much for having me on. You've been listening to a special sponsored edition of The Editors. Again, our regularly scheduled programming will return with our next episode. Our sponsor has been ClearPath, an organization devoted to breakthrough energy technologies that you can find at ClearPath.com dot org any rebroadcast retransmission or account this game by the way without the express written permission of national magazine is strictly prohibited this podcast has been produced by the incomparable sarah shouldy who makes us sound better than we deserve thanks everyone for listening we're the editors we'll see you next time